Hi, my name is Grace Smith, and you're listening to Walk Left, the podcast. And I'm Marty Chidori. Thanks for joining us. So, Grace, we're here to talk a bit about Roxanne, or Madeline Robin, known as Roxanne. Yes. Uh, but before we get to talking about your upcoming production... Tell me a bit about Theater Double Take. Yeah, so uh, Theater Double Take, this is our first full production. We've done a couple uh, staged readings and stuff so far. And our main thing is that we like to do adaptations either of older works, like older plays or books, or sometimes kind of adapting for the stage uh, historical events. And so the title kind of comes from taking a second look at something. Or we like to think of the really cheesy, like, actor double take, where you, like, glance at something, look away, and then have the what when you, like look back and there was something unexpected that you saw there that you didn't notice the first time you looked. So that's where the title comes from. And also I'm just, I'm an English and literature nerd. And so I really, really like like working on old books that I find fascinating and adapting them. And one of the things that I used to look at a lot of my English classes, a thing I would write a lot of my essays on was looking at a story adapted between mediums. The first essay kind of on that topic was looking at Harry Potter in different adaptations. So I would look at the book versus the movie versus a parody versus fan fiction. And it really fascinated me how just like a change of a word can totally alter the meaning of an entire scene. So adaptations have always fascinated me. And especially as a way to attack a work and to attack meaning that you find really interesting in it, like you want to bring out a theme more. And being an academic as well, so one way to go about attacking a theme in a play is to write a paper about it and to come at it from the more practical theater person side, for me, is to write an adaptation of it. It's like a a, a more dynamic essay. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay. So let's let's jump right in then, talking yeah. about uh, Cerno de Bergerac and Roxanne, and tell me... Give me sort of a background of, of, let's start with this production and then. Yeah. So I was working on this other play that was a very, very large adaptation. Like many different works were getting smushed together. There was a ton of research, a ton of characters. It was a very overwhelming process. And I was thinking, I just want to write, I want to take a break from that, write something really simple with like one or two characters and that's it. And I was talking to, uh, uh, my partner for theater double take, uh, Leet Stetson. And I was like, oh, what should I adapt? And he said, you should really adapt Cyrano de Bergerac because I would love to play Cyrano. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll give the, I'll give that play a read and see if there's anything in there. And so I read it and was like, oh yeah, there's some really cool, that character of Roxanne, like I really want to do some stuff with her. So I had to bring him back a first draft and say, so Cyrano isn't a character <laughs> in the play. And he was like, okay, well, who can I play then? I was like, there's no men in the play. <laughs> and he's like, Okay, I guess I'll assist and direct. (laughs) So when I'm reading uh, Cyrano de Bergerac and thinking, oh, what questions do I have about this? Most of them were wondering, uh, as I'm watching or reading Cyrano and Christian, like plotting and trying to like uh, find the best way to woo Roxanne. All I was wondering was, what would she think if she could see all this happening? So much is happening behind her back. There's so much information she doesn't know in the play and a lot of it gets unloaded on her on the very last moment of the play and then it ends so you never really get to hear her thoughts on finding out all the plotting that was going on behind her and i just was like you know what what would you think about that if if you found out all of that you would probably have some thoughts some of them would be maybe angry (laughs) 
So that was the starting point of the very first draft was just me ranting almost as if I was her saying, how could they do this to me? Uh, How could they take away my agency and not let me kind of choose for myself who I want to love? And uh, it's, it's gotten away from that. I think it's in a much less angry place and more exploratory. But that was that, that, that seed of just what would she think if you could just ask her as a character, Hey, so these guys totally lied to you for years and you trusted them. How do you feel about that? Right. Now that you're aware of the whole conspiracy yeah. that's been <laughs> plotted. Rather than the play ending, what do you think about it? There was a couple, um, moments in Cyrano de Bergerac that we drew a lot from. And that's something that I really like to do with my adaptations. I'm not one to just take the plot and like update it to modern times. That doesn't interest me. I'd rather look at that really weird line that doesn't make sense with the character as you know them or that that moment that hasn't aged really well or is kind of sexist now that we look back at it. I I really like to kind of focus in on those and extrapolate. So there's a couple moments from Cyrano de Bergerac that we've really taken most of our inspiration from. Um, One of them is in Cyrano de Bergerac, Roxanne goes to meet Christian and Cyrano when they're at war. And it's a very odd scene because she just kind of pops up in war with a bunch of food for everyone and just waltzes through the front like she owns the place and everyone's so charmed by her. And she's just being witty and charming and like cheering up all the soldiers and giving them tons of food. And you eventually learn that she's there to tell Christian, oh, I would love you even if you were ugly. I love you only for your soul, which of course is not his soul, is Cyrano's. And it, you know, it eventually drives the plot forward. But it's a very, like, we, we, we thought what an odd moment. And would that be something she'd be really proud of later that she just waltzed through a war zone to bring a bunch of guys food who were starving and also to see her husband, her lover? I feel like that's something you would be kind of proud of later. So we, that, that was a big character moment for her. Uh, her going to war is, is one of the ways we started to think about her differently than just a romantic heroine. She's not just this like, a fainting lady who who loves romantic poetry and loves romantic heroes. She's somebody who went through a really dangerous area and was very brave about it and was still like being very witty on the other side of all of that. So that was one moment. Uh, we also, there's this weird obsession with perfection in Cyrano de Bergerac. He says, Cyrano says at one point when he's caught this really gross actor kind of ogling Roxanne, that it's like seeing a slug crawl across a flower petal, that somehow gross things getting near Roxanne besmirches her perfection. And that's why he can't love her because he's so hideous and ugly and that would ruin how perfect she is. And that's so that's another aspect that we really brought in because no one can say perfect forever. Obviously, Roxanne's older at this point. She's uh, people age. Uh, people develop neuroses when people have been lying to them for years or they develop uh, eccentricities or your mind starts to go. So she's not perfect anymore. And obviously she never was perfect, but we think that we, we sort of thought that might be something she would be self-conscious about, that she used to be viewed as so perfect and now she isn't. So those are two of the things 
that we took a lot of inspiration from. Other than that, we kind of took some very base things about her character, a couple lines that we thought were cool. And other than that, we just sort of ran with it. And uh, that's why I hesitate to call it an adaptation anymore, because it's really it takes very little of the plot from Cyrano de Bergerac. It takes very little of the characters, even just Roxanne and a bit of the other two guys. Thinking about the character of Roxanne in the original work, Mm -hmm. it really is. I mean, she's definitely an object in that. And it sounds like she's shifted in this to being more of a subject Mm -hmm. of the play. Tell me about, I guess, that that character's journey. Yeah, you're right that uh, Roxanne really is an object in the original. Like, she's a she's a very charming object. She's a pretty object. She's a smart object. But she's very seen from the point of view of Christian and Cyrano. So the hardest part about that was when we were really hanging on to this as an adaptation, like a straight adaptation, was finding enough about her in the original to really keep her the same character and so I think the smartest thing we did was abandon that she's not going to be the same character she can't be and also it's it's years after the originals and setting it years after the original I think helped with that obviously you would change but I think we just had to take the freedom to give her more characteristics that have no basis in the original like we took the things that we could find there about her. Uh, we took her her bravery and her intelligence and her obsession with romantic poetry and with looks. But then we had to just say, okay, what else can she be? That's not an entire person. And so I think some at a certain point, you have to release yourself from the work you're adapting. Otherwise, it would be a very interesting essay, but not a play, uh, which has been a hard lesson to learn being an academic. <laughs> Uh, another thing that's been helpful developing her as a character is having an actor play her. It's t- only two actors performing the whole play, uh, Tennille Reed and Alexandra Simpson, and Tennille is playing Roxanne. So having an actual like full person playing her and being there for a lot of the script development has been really helpful because she can further point out all the places where she wasn't a full character yet when we gave her the script, all the uh, inconsistencies in her and all the places where she was too much of a a philosophical mouthpiece rather than a full person. And so that's been really helpful as well, having just people living in these characters. There's so much you don't know about a character until somebody tries to memorize all of their lines. So then tell me about then the, uh, I guess specifically the process then, how soon did you bring actors into taking a look at your script? The first draft was written last fall, so fall 2012, I guess. And uh, we brought in actors this past fall. So the script had been in development for about a year before any actors were cast fully. Like we did a couple stage readings, so actors have read the words out loud before. But it was, yeah, this past fall when we started reading it with these actors and giving them free reign to sort of develop their characters. It's been helpful as well for the other characters in the piece. So you have Roxanne, and then we invented a character, a maid uh, named Sophie, who visits her room and tends to her fire and stuff like that. And of course, she's a total departure. Like there's 
she's not a character in the original. And uh, that's been even more helpful to have an actor play her because she really was in those early drafts just a a person to ask Roxanne questions so she can answer them. The prompting kind <laughs> yes. of. Yes. Yeah. And how do you feel about that? Tell me more. So having somebody play her as well has been incredibly helpful in making sure that she's a full character with her own wants, that it's not all about Roxanne. And I think that ends up being a very useful lesson for Roxanne as well, that her problems aren't the biggest in the world. So you are not only the person who wrote the adaptation and who's been living with this from the writing side of it, but you're also the director of the production. Tell me about that sort of transition for you in changing hats how loyal you know can you choose to be to your academic writing yes having had that background <laughs> versus you know sitting there as the outside eye and that part of your job what are your what are your conferences like with the playwright <laughs> when you want rewrites oh god um i had i had such a great plan to start off with that i was going to um we were going to do a couple months of rehearsals with me being the playwright so they were going to be from the point of view of, you know, let's get new drafts done. Let's work on workshop this scene. Let's improv this bit. And I had a, this date on which I was going to switch hats totally. So after this, I said, no more changes, no more changes to the script. Now I'm the director. I'm going to treat this like a script that I just, you know, I just bought the rights to. And, you know, you can change a word or two, but we're going right. to mostly leave it. That has completely fallen apart, <laughs> um, which is good, though, because... Uh, I, I had that in my head as the best way to work, but really when you come down to it, I want the audience to have the best possible experience uh, with this play. And we all do, like the actors and the rest of the, the crew, we want the, uh, the audience to have the best possible experience watching this. So if there's a speech that is just not working and is going to bore everybody, I had to eventually decide... I'm not just going to leave that because I promised myself I would leave it. I'm, we're going to change it so that no one is falling asleep <laughs> or really confused. So I think abandoning hard set plans was step one there. As an academic, it's hard because I really want to use as many words as possible to explain <laughs> things. Right. Um, I'm trained to, do, to make things as clear as possible and to present an idea clearly and then to describe it in as many ways as possible. And then to say, here are all the possible ways you could disagree with this idea. And here I'm going to counter them. And by the end, I've totally fully defended this idea or this point or this argument. And you just can't do that in the same way in theater. You have to sometimes rely on uh, on just the forward momentum of the piece to get something across. You have to rely on... Sometimes you just have to rely on the actors to convey it with their performance and rely on the pace of the entire thing and rely on the audience being able to just fill stuff in as they're watching and rely on the audience to to care more about new information and about the characters than this philosophical like idea that you brought up in scene one that they might be okay if you don't fill that out completely. Right. Sometimes just a taste of an idea or a taste of a theme is enough and they'll do the work and carry it through. So I'm not used to like leaving things unexplained. It's been really hard. Uh, There's been a lot of conversations with the actors going, Grace, I think they'll get it. 
I think they'll be fine. I think they'll figure it out. And then I'm saying we don't need to have two pages of me explaining this, which means luckily the play has gotten a lot shorter, which is good. But it's, it's, it's hard to switch between those different hats. And sometimes, like in this case, I have to force myself to leave behind the academic hat. And sometimes as the director, I have to force myself to put back on the playwriting hat and you just have to do what's going to ultimately you have to do what's going to make the best product in the end what's going to work best for people who are paying to come see it oh for sure obviously like writing writing in a theatrical voice is so different than writing in an academic voice mm-hmm. number of words notwithstanding <laughs> um so yeah so just i guess that that's that's there's a change of hats in that as well in some ways they're more similar than i think people think they are The process starts really similarly for me, whether I'm writing an essay about a play or adapting it, I go through looking for quotes and I go through looking for bits that I can pull and use to make my argument. And uh, it just at a certain point when you're when you're polishing the product, I think that's where they they really differ. And you have to you have to accept that the audience is very different for both. On the last play I was working on, which had a, had a very academic character who would explain a lot of things. And in that case, I thought it was kind of okay because that fit in with their character. And a lot of people uh, said, you can't have them explaining so much. People aren't going to care about their theory about this character and how this theme, etc. And on one hand, yes, there's a lot of things that will not work in a play that would work in an essay and a lot of stuff you have to cut out. But I think you can also trust the audience to follow along like I don't think you have to accepting that the audience for both is different doesn't mean that I'm I think that the theatrical audience is any less intelligent or uh, can't follow along with the same ideas and the same level of ideas you just have to present them differently right yeah no the the theatrical audience can be sophisticated enough to accept whatever voice you're choosing to speak in Mm -hmm. for sure tell me about the space that this is being presented in oh yeah so our venue is the Lemon Tree Creation Studio on Spadina between Queen and Dundas. And it's normally used as a rehearsal space. I think they're, they're starting to do more productions there, which is great. And it's one just long room. It's kind of rectangle shaped. And we're setting it up like Roxanne's bedroom. She's staying in the guest houses of a convent, which is where you leave her. That's the last time you see her in Cyrano de Bergerac. She's staying at this convent. She's not a nun, but she's staying there. And so we're in her bedroom for the entire play and uh, you're really in her bedroom. There's not like the audience space and then her bedroom is over there. Your chairs are like sitting on her carpet or something like that. So that that I think is already cool because you only in Cyrano de Bergerac really see her from the outside. So already you're in her private space. The second you walk into the venue, you're already much more intimate with her than you would be at all like in an entire production of Cyrano de Bergerac. Our designer, Claire Hill, has a really great way of literalizing the uh, the themes that are in uh, in the show. And so one of the themes is that things you think are solid or irrefutable becoming less so or becoming destabilized. So a fact you think is beyond doubt suddenly kind of falling apart the closer you look at it. So she's made some really, I don't want to spoil it, but she's made some really cool set pieces and stuff like that that look solid or are presented as one thing and then can morph into something else over the course of a show. And I think that's 
that's one of the wonderful things we can do in a stage production that I couldn't do in an essay, so to speak. And I think it really, the way that the design works is really cool and plays with theatrical conventions because audiences are so wonderfully accepting of things once you've set them up. Like you set up that that table is a time machine. It's a time machine for the rest of the play. Right. They are on board with that. Then you start using it as a table and they're like, why is everyone eating on the time machine? This makes no sense. So I think the set design really plays with that, with, with that train of thought that audiences go on once you've set up something. And I think it's going to be really, I think it's going to be one of the highlights of the production um, cool. to take the pressure off myself as a playwright and put it, <laughs> and put it entirely on the designer. Nice. Let's talk a little bit about the the title of yes. your play because it's it's Roxanne, but it's it's a it's a full name description. Mm-hmm. Tell tell me about the how you how you came up with the title for this production. Yeah, uh, so the full title is uh, Madeline Robin, known as Roxanne, and we do have Roxanne in the biggest letters on the poster. But I think I have this uh, this obsession with names of female characters or or things they're called or titles or nicknames. In, in the original play, in Cyrano de Bergerac, everyone calls Roxanne Roxanne, but her real name is Madeline Robin, and she's very infrequently called that in the play. It's only referenced once or twice, and she, she always has this kind of, this uh, uh, affectionate nickname of Roxanne. And so I, once again, I wondered, what does she think? I wonder which one she likes better of those two names. You never really hear her opinion on that. And so I wanted to kind of reclaim her full name for her. Also, I think calling the play Roxanne's name, calling it Madeline Robin, known as Roxanne, really places it as the flip side of Cyrano de Bergerac. That that play bears his name because it's about him. It's totally 100% about Cyrano. And so this play, it's 100% totally about Roxanne and not really about anyone else. And so it should bear her name. And I don't want people coming in just hearing, oh, adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac. Oh, I can't wait to see that Cyrano guy again. He was he was witty. That This will be fun. I want them to know really who it's going to be about. And I think it's interesting. She's talked about for a long time in Cyrano de Bergerac before she actually appears and has lines of her own. Um, someone just says, oh, over there, that that chick, she's Madeline Robin. People call her Roxanne. And that's sort of the end of it. You have like, I think, a friar at one point says, I'm looking for Madeline Robin. Um, but for the rest of the play, yeah, just everyone calls her Roxanne. It's not really uh, touched on. And I remember finding it very surprising when I went back to the original play and was looking for it for quotes. I was like, shit, that's Roxanne's not a real name? What? And also, where did that come from? Madeline Robin, how did that turn into Roxanne? Was like, did somebody just like get drunk and accidentally call her that one time and it stuck? Or is that any French people listening to this? You can, you can like email me and tell me if that's a common nickname for <laughs> Madeline Robin. <laughs> and also you can tell me how badly I'm mispronouncing a lot of French words. How, I mean, obviously you're approaching this in a bit of a, an intellectual way. I don't know how much you got caught up in the trappings of the Frenchness of it all. We but... didn't really. Um, we decided to sort of divorce it from a particular time or place. It's referenced that they're in France. And the names that uh, of characters that we've invented are are French. Besides that, I think 
uh, Roxanne says a couple words in French at one point, but we really wanted to set this in a hypothetical world, set this in a, in an imaginary world where this is just us wondering, I wonder what Roxanne would think about this. So we've very forcibly divided it from historical accuracy. The moment you walk into the set, you're going to know this is, they, they are not going for, uh, like 1600s France exactly. And I think that gave us the freedom to not really feel too attached to any given time or place. What is it about Roxanne that makes her Roxanne? And, and how did you hold on to that, taking her out of all of her trappings? We really took her in the original as the romantic heroine. And that being just so much a part of who she is in that play and so a lot of a lot of actually the tension in the play comes from her as a person moving from this world where she's a hair where she's a heroine where she's the object of affection where she's the the most beautiful woman in the world and moving to a world that's after that to after the play ends after the adventure is over after it's just time to be just a regular person living in the world so i think it's Thematically, we're dealing with that, that, uh, difference between an archetypal figure and an, and a real person who's more complicated than that. And I think Roxanne is dealing with that as well as a self, as a self identity crisis that I used to be this, this larger than life archetype. Am I still that once you've removed me from the play? Am I still that heroine or am I like once you've removed me from that context of the romance? Am I something totally different? Am I a totally different person? So a, a lot of our struggles writing that transition have have transferred to her as a character who would have in her life had to make that transition from this really adventurous life to oh, I, I'm just a regular person. I live in this room and I go about my daily whatevers. And I think that in the in Cyrano de Bergerac, both Cyrano and Christian, these two other guys get to have that that tension between the archetype that neither of them is totally matching up to and, and reality, they both get to have that, okay, I'm one half of a romantic hero. Cyrano gets to have that. I'm the clever part who's a good fighter, but I'm not the handsome part. Christian gets to have the, um, I'm very handsome and I'm also a good fighter, but I'm not, I'm not the poet. They both get to have that. I'm not matching up to this archetype and they both get to uh, reconcile that or fail to reconcile that, but attempt to. Whereas Roxanne doesn't in a way. She reconciles it in other people. She reconciles that she loves, when you love a person, you love them for their, for their soul, as she says, for who they are rather than what they look like. But she never has to reconcile that in herself. She's, she is the archetypal romantic heroine. These two other guys, the romantic male hero doesn't exist in this world, but the female one does. She is both witty and beautiful. And so she doesn't have to make that self journey in the original. And so we're sort of now she gets to take her little journey of I'm not perfect. How do I deal with that? Madeline Robin, known as Roxanne, uh, running February 5th to the 9th at Lemon Tree Creation Studio. Thank you so much, Grace. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have an upcoming Toronto-based performing arts project or production, I want to talk to you about it. Visit walkleft.ca.